None of these babies in any of our services cried one iota. I mean, they are anointed by Jesus, for sure. (laughs) Pretty amazing. Usually we have one belting out, but none today. We're glad you're here. Uh, Welcome this morning. It's uh, good to be together always and to worship the Lord in community. You know, I had a hard time when I got up this morning. My arm was frozen. It was like that. I kept doing that. I think it's from holding an umbrella all week, you know, and I just kept putting... (laughs) It just, it's, it's great to have a, have a morning like this for sure. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Take a moment to fill that connection card. If you haven't done that yet, please. And if you're new to us today and don't have a church home, we'd love to have you be a part of us. If you're new to Christ, we love to walk with people who are just getting familiar with him and understanding things of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. So let us help you in that journey, if you would. Open your Bibles or take your devices and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. That's where we are today. Uh, ever since uh, Easter Sunday, when we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, we've been dealing with the so what of that. Uh, the Bible teaches that when we are baptized into Jesus Christ, we are then raised with him. And so we are empowered by, by God's spirit within us to live a new life. The old is gone, the new has come. And so what's so new about being raised with Christ? How does the resurrection of Jesus go on to impact us? So that's what we're dealing with today in our text. I'm always a little resident to uh, speak about suffering. That's what our text is about today because I just don't feel like I've, I've suffered uh, nearly as much as other people have. One woman emailed me a few years ago and said, I didn't really know what suffering was until I heard you preach. Now I understand. Didn't know quite what to do with that, you know. Payne Stewart won his uh, second U.S. Open back on July 25th in 99. And Payne uh, had not been a Christian most of his life. And uh, he lived in Orlando, and he sent his two kids to um, a Christian school there in Orlando. And that was the open door to him to start discovering faith. And uh, he eventually became a Christian because of his kids going to Christian school. And that was the time when those WWJD bracelets were really popular. What would Jesus do? And so he felt that was cool. He wore one everywhere. Three months later, after he gave his life to Christ, uh, he was flying on a jet, and his jet went down in South Dakota. He and five others were killed in in that plane crash. And at his funeral... Uh, a lot of PGA, PGA players were there, of course, packed funeral, and um, his, his widow passed out WWJD bracelets. Now, that, that WWJD, what would Jesus do, first really became popular clear back in 1896 when a preacher from Topeka, Kansas, by the name of Charles Sheldon, wrote a book out of sermons that he had preached called In His Steps. And he asked the question in that, what would Jesus do? Clear back, not long after I came here in the, in the late 80s, our church, uh, church-wide, we read that paperback book in his steps. It's still a, a classic today. It, it's, a good, it's a good question. It's, it sounds pretty Christianese today, you know, if you know what I mean. It's like bumper stickerish uh, and, and uh, kind of trite. But there's nothing wrong with living in that atmosphere of life, isn't there? When he is Lord of life... We do bring him into every facet of our being and who we are. It does pose a good question, what would Jesus do? This phrase, this this book entitled In His Steps, out of which this question is first posed, um, is found in our text today in 1 Peter 2, In His Steps, 
You'll see it when we read the passage here. Um, it's the only time that phrase is in the Bible. And remember that when Peter is writing this, the year is 63 A.D., so some 30 years after the church begins, Nero is the emperor in Rome. The church has been taking on Europe like wildfire. Uh, Those who study such things say that, that by the end of the first century, you know, half of the urban centers of Europe were Christian. I mean, it's just an amazing thing how the gospel took hold when, it was, when Christ was preached. When Nero's on the throne, he hates Christians. He burns them alive. He's out to persecute them. I, I've said recently, last year, 90,000 Christians were killed in the world last year for their faith. I mean, it's a still a real problem in our world. These Christians that Peter's writing to are, are enduring terrible pain, and they're under this this reign of terror uh, by Nero. And what, what so impresses me about Peter, he, just, he never pampers them in the letter. He never soft speaks anything. He never coddles them. He challenges them to stay strong and be bold, be fully alive in the Lord. That's what we're going to hear today in this text. So here we go, starting verse 19. It is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering... Because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, then this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So today, we want to learn how do we follow in his steps, in the steps of Jesus And there are at least three different things we need to understand about the steps of Jesus from this text. First of all, Jesus' footprints are filled with pain. Verse 21 says, Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, when we think about the pain of Christ, obviously, we, we run right to the cross itself. But there are all levels of pain that Jesus dealt with in relationships, when he was misunderstood, misquoted, when he was wrongly charged. Uh, He endured a kind of relational uh, pain because no one, no one fully understood him. Even his closest men, Peter, James, and John, never quite fully understood him until after the resurrection. So imagine his whole time here, there was nobody that would be his his, the one who really would his full, had his full, full understanding of who he was. So our first step here is Jesus is our pattern for response. When suffering, for response when suffering, what would Jesus do? WWJD, it it doesn't always work. One reason is because we don't always know how Jesus would respond exactly because he's always surprising us by his varied responses and when you study his life. We scratch our heads a lot, don't we, when we study the life of Jesus. And he amazes us as how, as, at how he walks through the crowd and how he deals with people. And sometimes he's, he's head on. He challenges them, like with the religious leaders. And sometimes with the people you think he'll come down on, he doesn't. 
He just says, go and sin no more, things like that. So we don't always know how he would respond. And second of all, we don't have the power to respond necessarily like Jesus would. For instance, he's in a boat, snoozing away in the middle of the storm. The disciples are bailing. They're fearful about losing their lives. They're ticked off that Jesus is sleeping. And finally, you know, they wake him up. Lord, Master, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus gets up and says, quiet, be still. And the sea obeys. I've tried that. It didn't work, you know. So, so Jesus had control over the natural, natural things of this created world um, because it was all created by him. And so he's Lord of all creation can do that. We can't do that. But we can be assured that from cradle to grave, our whole life journey is filled with all different levels, kinds of pains. They come in all different forms. No one is exempt. And seldom are there easy answers for such pains. Job of old wrote, man is born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. We know that heated air is lighter than oxygen, so you can be sure when you're starting a bonfire, the sparks are never going to go that way. They always go up. That's, that's the principle. And just as sure as that is, Job says, there, there is trouble in our life. Now, there is that kind of trouble in life that comes from bad choices, Peter talks about that. He said, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? Galatians 6, 7 says, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. There's nobody here who has not made some bad choices. We've all made bad. Even in the context of our Christian life and faith, we've made bad choices. Uh, uh, I, you know, I, I, sometimes I stun myself with my stupidity, you know, because of, of choices I make, because I make them outside of the context of seeking the will of God. I, I react about something, and I don't really seek his counsel. And, and today, you may be experiencing some consequences of bad choices you've made. And by the way, as an aside, the sa- Satan loves, he, he, his name means the accuser. He loves to take the consequences that we're dealing with and accuse us of not really being loved, or loved by God or saved by him. We, we endure these consequences and we start questioning, did God really forgive me for that? Yes, if you, you've been washed by the blood of Christ, that's gone, but it doesn't mean all the consequences go away. And so we still have to, you know, we have to work through that. I read about a guy in Louisiana went to rob a liquor store. He pulled a shotgun out on the clerk, demanded the money. She gave it to him and saw a bottle of scotch. And he said, I'd like a bottle of scotch too. And she said, I don't think you're 21. So the guy handed her his driver's license. (laughs) It wasn't hard to nab him, you know. Now, my point is that living outside the will of God, outside a sense of his presence and his lordship, will just, you can guarantee, will continue to do stupid things. Do things without thinking. That's just what happens. When Christ is Lord, he helps, he, he grants us wisdom and helps us in life choices and decisions. And the closer we come to the heart of God, the wiser we're going to become and, and as we run the distance with him. And I hope we'll, we'll be doing that all the time, coming closer to him. Verse 19 says, it's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. There's all kinds of, there's all kinds of unjustified suffering, suffering in ways we don't deserve. Uh, we, we, we don't know that there's some people that seem to go from one, one issue to another in life. I don't know why that is. 
I'm confounded by pain like you are when I see people's lives, and I, I don't have answers for that. I loved, used to love that comic strip, Frank and Ernest, you know, and uh, Frank and Ernest are going down the sidewalk, and they see this billboard that says, the world's fair, and Ernest says to Frank, well, that's news to me. You know, the world isn't fair. It just isn't fair. So it come, pain comes in all kinds of levels, all kinds of ways. And, and Jesus didn't, certainly didn't deserve to be beaten and killed, but he suffered and died. And no one better understands all those levels of suffering than Jesus himself. Second of all, Jesus' footprints are filled with endurance. They're filled with endurance. Verse 20 says, if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. So the second step we follow with Jesus is I won't retaliate when people hurt me. You can't go through life and not be hurt by people unless you're just a hermit somewhere. Someone offered this advice that when pain comes to your life, you can be like an egg and become hard-boiled, hard or you can become like a potato, be soft and pliable. I've never prayed the prayer, God, make me a potato. But you get the idea. God... I pray that I will always be moldable by you. Don't let my pain that I'm going through make me hard or crusty, hard-edged. Don't make me an abusive kind of person because of my pain. And yet so many people become that way because of the hurts they've gone through in their own lives. Guard your heart about that. There are, here are four typical ways that we re- respond to pain. Some have to do with people and some have to do with just life pains. You can apply it as you will. One is revenge. Of course, that comes with people, uh, people that hurt us, that says, I'll get even. Now, you know, when, when, a, when you live by that, it's never a get even. Because when you live by revenge, it's always a one-upmanship. If you're trying to get even, it's got to be one better. And then they respond, it's one better. It's always trumping the other person when we think we're just getting even. And that's why it continues to hurt and just destroy us from the, from the inside out. One man wrote a letter to his neighbor, Dear Frank, we've been neighbors for six tumultuous years. When you borrowed my tiller, you returned it in pieces. When I was sick, you blasted rap music. When your dog went, did his business all over my lawn, you laughed. I could go on, but I'm certainly not one to hold grudges. So I'm writing this letter to let you know your house is on fire. Sincerely, Bob. <laughs> now, we wouldn't necessarily do that, but we wouldn't mind seeing it happen, Right? We've got to guard our hearts all the time. Second, we become self-consumed. Poor me. It's like a quicksand that pulls us under. We feel sorry for ourselves. This anger turns into deep-set bitterness within, and we think about ourselves more than other people. Please guard yourself against that. We, you know, already by nature, you know, these babies are cute today. They're little monsters inside, you know. <laughs> That's coming. You're just not there yet. And, and it, you know, in just a couple of years, it's that terrible two and three and all that. And you think, how could this be the baby I carried in my arms? It was so sweet. How did devils come out of them, you know? Because by human nature, by our fallenness, we, we, we are self-consumed. We are. Now, I think social media is a great tool, and I think the church ought to use it well. I think we as believers ought to use it well, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, whatever it is, it's a great tool, but guard yourself. We're already self-consumed. Social media only magnifies that. 
And we love talking about ourselves and our lives and bragging about ourselves and wanting people to know about our lives. We just have to be very careful. I know we meet it innocently at the beginning, but it snowballs into us almost wanting to trump each other in how grand our lives really are. And that's not healthy for us. So let's use social media in a way that builds other people up. There's more about encouraging others and blessing others than drawing attention to ourselves. Now, that happens through life as well. My mother-in-law is 88 and deals with a lot of pains in her body, but she says one of the hardest things to deal with in assisted living is all the older pe- old people like her who are so self-consumed. She says, I can hardly stand being at meals because it's all about themselves, their pains, their hurts, their negative. And she keeps saying, I'm determined I'm not going to be that way. And she, and she really works hard against it. We have to do the same thing, friends. We have to work, listen to ourselves and work. And if you don't want to end up your life like that, self-consumed, then we have to train ourselves now in our healthier years that we're not going to. We, if now we learn to be givers and be more concerned with others than ourselves, it will keep us from being so self-consumed when we get to that level of our lives. Third is denial. Who, me? I'm not hurting. Sometimes it sounds so Christian. No, to act like all is well. No, I'm fine. You know, and uh, I've been guilty of it for sure. I've got it all together when when I really don't. And uh, refusing to admit that we're hurting, that we're struggling, that we need prayer, that is not helpful for the body of Christ. In the body of Christ, what makes the body strong is when the whole body, not the whole body, I'm, I'm, I'm literally, I mean when other members of the body are helping a weaker part of the body. I'm not saying that your pain, everybody should know in the church. That's why I'm, not, I'm correcting myself. But everybody needs somebody in the context of the kingdom to be the one that lifts them up. And we really need more than one per- person. And that's the value I find in my own life group is that there is, there is more transparency, there is vulnerability, there is praying for each other, and no matter what it is, we're there for each other. I mean, it's a grand community of faith, and we want that for you as well in, in your journey, and I hope you'll, you'll give yourself to that. Uh, uh, fourth way is, of course, spirit-filled. God calls us to respond in a way because we're filled with God's spirit, says, I'm hurting, but with God's strength, I'll endure it. We walk in Jesus' steps this way. Hebrews 12 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the hope set before, the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Our future joy helps us deal with the pain of today, whatever it is. We know whatever it is, a struggle. And you may think, well, that may be 40 years from now. Nevertheless, And keeping that in view and the temporary nature of this life, we are just passing through. This is a temporary journey. And I want to add, as an aside today, years ago I did a, uh, I was preaching on pain and suffering, and there's a woman that came up to me afterwards and said, I'm really glad you preached about this today because, you know, my husband is is, uh, very abusive, and I know I'm not supposed to leave him. And I said, ah, you're wrong. (laughs) If if, If you're in an abusive relationship, if someone is hurting you physically and, and be, or controlling you, you know, where you don't have freedoms and, and you can't be a, you, you need to find safety. So always know that if, you're, if you have a friend like that, you encourage them. This scripture is not about uh, an, a, that kind of abuse. It's about living our lives in a, in a world that is fallen, where there are lots of levels of pain come. 
And there are some times that people fall under the sin of other people's abusive nature, and uh, we, we need to be free from that. Jesus had the power to call down legions of angels to rescue him, and he didn't do it. He could, he could, have, he could have slain all those Roman soldiers. He didn't do it. He wore the crown of thorns. He was mocked by them. He never spit on them. He didn't retaliate. He simply laid his life down. And he did it because he saw you and me in the future. He was the one who could take all this for a, for, for a grand purpose of the salvation of the world and hope for the world. Since then, others have followed in his steps to that degree. Now, when they died, they couldn't die for anybody else's salvation. But they died in the name of Jesus because he emboldened them by his own suffering. And third, Jesus' footprints are filled with total trust. They're filled with total trust. Verse 23 says, when he suffered... He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So the third step step is, I will surrender my pain to the perfect judge. Goliath was not the only giant that David slew. You remember that that David first was seen by Saul when he when he uh, the king when he slew Goliath, and Saul was so impressed by David. Now, Saul had been the first king of Israel, you remember. He stood shoulder and head and tall above anybody else. He started out seemingly very humble, hiding in the baggage, but then he was anointed, uh, anointed as king of Israel, the first one. Uh, David he impresses him. He brings David to his house uh, to mentor him, and it's not long before David's involved in battle, and this little ditty is sung that, that Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens, thousands, tens of thousands and so he was gaining all this popularity, and of course, Saul grew in jealousy within. He threw a, a spears at David at supper time. He might have thrown spears at you at supper. You haven't had to go through that. Now, maybe you had verbal spears come at you, but he didn't throw them back. Eventually, David fled for his life with men who were out to protect him and believed in him. On one occasion, they went into a cave. And Saul needed to relieve himself. He went in the cave not knowing that David was in there. And David snuck up behind him and cut a piece of his robe off, even though he had a chance to kill him. And he wouldn't do it. He says in 1 Samuel, look at this piece of robe in my hand. Cut off the corner of your robe. I cut off the corner of your robe, but it did not kill you. I've not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. He refused. He refused to respond in the way the typical world would. Because King Saul, that that was God's problem. That was God's problem, not David's problem. And he wasn't going to do what only God had the authority to do. He trusted completely God to take care of Saul in his own time, in his own way. And God did. And then David became king. Our verse 23 says that that Jesus entrusted himself Paradidomai is the Greek word there. It means to give somebody something valuable to protect, like your purse or your wallet. You give give it to somebody trustworthy, knowing it's going to be taken care of. It's the same word that Jesus uses on the cross when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That word commit, same Greek word. He entrusted himself totally to the Father. And friends, that's what we're called to do. In the face of suffering, we have learned so much from suffering, from suffering about suffering from Johnny, Johnny Erickson Tata, who of course became quadriplegic when she was a teenager. Uh, 
as a result of a diving accident. She writes this. Suppose you had never in your life known physical pain, no sore back, twisted ankle, or decayed molars. What if you never had to use those crutches or that walker? How could you appreciate the scarred hands with which Christ will greet you? If you were never embarrassed or felt ashamed, you could never grasp how much he loved you when he endured the spit from soldiers, the spinelessness of his disciples, the callousness of the crowd, and the jeers from the mob, all for the love of you. Someone loves you so much that he laid down his life that you may not only live forever, but that you will have somebody somewhere to rest in the midst of your pain between now and then. Somewhere to land. The Bible says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. You have to take your pain and then we commit that, we entrust that to the one who perfectly suffered for us. You know, in... in in my hand, I can hold a baseball, and it's worth about seven bucks. But in the hands of Stanton, who plays for the Mariners, it's worth about $25 million. Uh, I can hold a basketball worth about 20 bucks. LeBron holds it, it's worth about $200 million. Uh, I hold a golf club, it's just very frustrating. And to Rory McIlroy, it's worth about $50 million. It all depends on whose hands it's in. I could play fetch with a stick with a dog. But a stick in the hands of Moses, who lived by faith, a giant of the faith, he could part the Red Sea. Uh, uh, a slingshot in my hands is like a kid's toy, but in the hands of David, it, it calls down a giant and kills it, slays the giant. You know, I, you hand me some pieces of bread and a couple of fish, I can make a decent fish sandwich. But in the hands of Jesus, he fed thousands. It all depends on whose hands it's in. Nails in my hand. Uh, you don't do very much good. Maybe I can hang pictures on a good day. But in the hands of Jesus, they become the source of those wounds in his hand that held him in the cross because he loved us so very much. It all depends on whose hand it's in. So he calls us to take our pain and put that pain in the hands of himself. And let him do with that pain what he wants to do. Will he take it away? No promises. Will he tell us why we're suffering? Not necessarily. Job never found out. But when you question all that, when you want to know, when you can't figure out, when you are tempted to become hard-boiled toward God... Well, if that's the way it is, then I'm just going to walk. We're not answering my prayers. Why am I going to church? When you're tempted that way, you have to keep coming back to the fact that God is so good. Because this Bible is not about me figuring God out. This Bible is about God revealing himself to us. 
And the more we're in the scripture, what happens is we learn what this God is like so that when life doesn't make sense, when the pain is too great, there's still one I ultimately trust and believe in no matter what, no matter how deep the pain, no matter how much it hurts, whether it's just suffering or unjust suffering, whatever it is, he's the one, the one constant that will never change and the one I can trust and who suffered far more than I will ever suffer in this life because of his love. So put your pain in the hands of Jesus and let his peace fill you. Verse 24 says, by his wounds you are healed. So walk in his steps. I assure you that the sufferings of this present age will not compare to the glories that are still to be revealed. Let's pray. And so, Father, we honor you this day. We love and value who you are. And I pray that we shall be found faithful. No matter what the course of life brings. Until our dying breath. In Jesus' name.